You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Interning 101 podcast, hosted by yours truly, Emily White, author of Interning 101. Welcome to episode 10 of the Interning 101 podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. And I'm so excited to have my dear friend and publicist extraordinaire, Elizabeth Freund, on the show. Welcome, Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is the founder of Beautiful Day Media. How long have you had Beautiful Day? Founded it in 2007, but it was um, a name change to a company I founded in 1994. Cool. Tell me about the 1994 company. I don't know about that. Oh, that's when I went out on my own. Okay. Um, I called it very simply EFPR. Yeah. Uh, started in my living room. And um, yeah, so it, it start, that's where I started my own public relations firm and in 2007 changed it. Got it. So um, if you don't mind, I'd love, to, love for you to share uh, some of the clients that you work with. Um, my first two clients on my own were Linda McCartney and Ringo Starr. Uh, Robert Palmer and UB40 came shortly thereafter. Um, I continued to represent Ringo. I had first represented him working for Joe Darren Associates. I represent Paul Simon, Joe Walsh, Eric Burden, Bob Geldof. Those are some of them. So some small artists that no one's ever heard of. Some that obviously had... An incredible impact on everything, all of us, culture. So let's go to the beginning. And I, I, I knew your story from Ringo on, but we were just talking before this interview. Tell me how you got your start in this crazy industry. I was raised by visual artists, but always loved music. Music was my best friend growing up. I was fascinated by everything having to do with music. Um, we were talking about that earlier. I love the smell of records and the way if you hold um, two pieces of cardboard apart and you let the air pass through, it has this like vanilla comforting smell. I mean, just there was nothing about a record that I wasn't interested in. Um, so fresh out of college, I just gravitated towards everything and anything music related. I started interning at a... Where did you go to college, by the way? I went to SUNY Purchase. Great. And I studied visual art. Nice. Um, painting, minor in art history, uh, tapestry weaving. I was also a weaving teacher. Perfect for PR. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Studied nothing about public relations, only art history. Wound up in a recording studio. And, and I'm sorry, are you from New York originally? Born and raised. Okay, great. But also lived in Vermont and Boston, so... Um, I almost, I guess that's partly very New York-y, yeah. is to live here and also live other places. And did you grow up in New York City or state of New York? Upper West Side. Amazing. Yeah, Upper West Side in the 70s, 60s and 70s, wow. where it was mayhem. Yeah. You know, it was um, 
we were bankrupt. Koch was mayor. It was it was a crazy time to grow up in New York City. Beans and lovins and yeah. Uh, we um, in seventh grade we um, held a sit-in in our principal's office for two days. Amazing. And we barricaded ourselves in and demanded better textbooks and desks, and we got them. <laughs> Excellent. I yeah, love it, was it. That kind of, it was that kind of world. Anyway, so um, and I didn't graduate from purchase. Mm-hmm. I just felt like I'd had enough. Yeah. Um, paid for my own way through college and felt like I got what I needed. I don't need your piece of paper. So and that's never stopped me. Right. Um, I guess. Whether it's, I mean, as a visual artist, I didn't think it was going to matter. It certainly didn't matter to me. Sure. I was just going to pursue what I want to pursue, and it hasn't meant anything right. for my, my industry. Um, my first job in music was um, I worked at a record store, and I filed and um, helped put away records and shipments when they came in. Um, loved doing that. Then I also... I, interned at a recording studio. I had the night shift, 10 bucks a shift, swept floors, answered phones, hovered during recording sessions, um, worked for as a part-time DJ and for a guy called Party Master. And I was on the, the Catskill circuit. So I was playing to packed ballrooms or basements. And um, I loved seeing the effect of something really hyper and everybody gets really excited and you play something really mellow and everyone kind of chills and uh so i went from that uh, that was not financially stable um so i decided i wanted to get a job at a record company and i flipped through my record collection to see where do i want to wind up because where what do i have the most of i did the same thing <laughs> there you go um and i had the most of atlantic and geffen i had geffen was mine too there you go. Uh, and they were all at that point at 75 Rockefeller Plaza. And this is mid-80s, so you could just walk in and go pick any elevator, you know, and any floor you wanted to. That's not true now. And I had written out a resume on black velvet paper with silver pen. And I was dropping it off at every single floor. And after dropping it off at one particular floor, I got into the elevator, hit up, and the guy, a guy got on with me and he said, those are all going into the garbage. And if you really want a job, go up to the 24th floor and ask for Virginia and say that Chris sent you. So I did. And Virginia gave me a typing test, which I passed. And uh, she handled the interns for the entire building. The next day I landed at Atlantic Records in the inventory department. And I was there for seven months maybe uh when i a girlfriend of mine was interviewing at the a and r department at geffen and that interview she said that she was overqualified for it so she called me up and said they want to talk to you and i walked in had an interview and got the job amazing yeah it was fabulous uh and so geffen was this their east coast office was almost like a satellite office there was only the uh, four heads of departments uh, there was a receptionist at the front, and then uh, Don Maggi, head of promotion, Michael Rosenblatt, who was my boss, head of A&R, Sandy Giorgio, who worked directly for Mr. Geffen, and Mr. Geffen had his office there, so he was in and out. Um, it was so exciting. It was. It was so exciting. Graham Bridenthal was and Lori Earle were doing PR. We were launching Guns N' Roses. Edie Brickell was on the label. Joni had chalk marked of a rainstorm, which I love that record. Um, Jimmy Page, Outrider, 
it was man that roster was that's insane it was insane and it was like i was in heaven yeah absolutely in heaven i love it yep so what happened from there what happened from there uh Delta. Why would you leave heaven? Yeah, because <laughs> I almost went to heaven. Um, my uh, my career was ascending, um, but my addiction, I was uh, an alcoholic and a heroin addict at the time. And they kind of collided. And uh, anyway, I hit a bottom. Mm. And Geffen was incredibly supportive during that bottom, but I needed to get sober. So I took seven months uh, to go to treatment. Uh, again, Geffen held the door. They were they were so, just so utterly supportive of my own personal journey, but also my family's. You know, on um, after seven months, I was allowed to come back to work for them, but I had also heard that uh, to make your sobriety as stable as possible, you want to change people, places, and things. I didn't want to leave the music industry, but I knew I shouldn't go back to my old job. Mm. So I shifted gears out of A&R and into public relations. And I started interviewing for very junior internee, you know, um, jobs. And I had been, one person uh, asked me to come into a record label. And during that interview, she suggested that uh, she made a phone call. And she said, I don't think that you're right for a record company, but I do know someone you write for. And it was a small PR firm. God bless them all for, for hiring me. Um, because during my interviews, I would let the person know that I was only seven months sober and that sobriety was my number one priority. Um, this made many interviews go afoul. <laughs> um, it cost me a lot of jobs, but what it didn't cost me was my sobriety. So it meant wherever I landed, and I really was confident that I would land somewhere. Um, I was going to make sure that my sobriety stayed stayed at the top of my priority list, um, and I landed at a perfect place. Uh, the woman who hired me, uh, Mika uh, Mika Elbaz, a wonderful, amazing, powerful woman of our industry who I still admire. Um, she's like my one of my inspirations. Mm -hmm and heroes. Um, she hired me and Joe Dara was our boss and he hired me. And I learned a lot from Joe. Joe was, Joe was really great at, uh, as a publicist, um, as a, you know, he spearheaded a lot of the direction that we've all gone in, you know, as I, don't know, I don't want to call him like a forefather because that's a little much, but um, anyway, Joe was great and, and did teach me a lot. Um, so I landed there. I landed there while also living in a therapeutic community, so maintaining my sobriety. Um, and the artists that I got put on with had also just begun their sober road. So one of those artists was Ringo. And the tour bus would stop in front of the rehab and drop me off at the rehab mm -hmm. after a gig. It was amazing. Wow. So I landed in a place that was completely supportive yeah. of where I was. And it fit very well with where the artists I was working at were at. That must have taken tremendous courage to open with that in interviews. And I was a kid in the 80s, so my perceptions are almost like stereotypes. But, you know, like if, if I was interviewing someone now and they said that, I would think that's awesome. 
I'd be like, great, we want to support you on that. And I'm so grateful that you found that right home. But yeah, I just, I can't even imagine how challenging that would have been. I, I don't know. I, again, I wasn't there. I don't know if it's like, because I feel like people are more open to that now. And I, I could see someone saying that. But I think to say that in the 80s is a big deal. Or I could be totally wrong because like you said, these, these legends from the 60s are getting their lives together, you know? So, but either way, just tremendous courage. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it did... It definitely made a lot of people very uncomfortable. Mm, I that. Yeah. But when you almost lose your life, things get a lot easier and clearer and more simple. And I love what I do, and I love that I get to be part of this industry, but I love that I'm alive more. Yeah. And by steering, by leading with that, whatever, wherever I was going to land, was going to be aligned with supporting the most important aspect of my life, which is my spiritual and physical well-being. Right. Everything else falls in line behind that. Yep. And if it doesn't, you're not in a good place. And it probably won't last anyway. One, because you might die, or, um, or you'll be in a very toxic environment. And so by leading with that, I eliminated a lot of process that if I hadn't led with that, I might have landed in a place that either I'd have to leave or it would be such a, a poor fit, it might threaten my sobriety. Right. So that, that wasn't my story. And the woman who hired me, I, I'd asked her, why did you hire me? And she said, because I could tell that you had everything to prove and you'd be a great employee. So that says a lot about her, too. Um, she's still a great leader and boss. Um, but it also says that whatever that message is that you need to deliver, have the courage to do so. Yeah. Because it will it will only pay off for you. Agreed. You know, it, it, it won't anything it, that it costs you, you probably shouldn't have had. Absolutely. So some technical questions because I guess I haven't really. It, it feels ridiculous saying this because I wrote a book called Interning One Hundred and One, but I haven't really thought about internships in the eighties. Were they paid? Was college credit an expectation? Like, what? Is, I, I, I'm sure the actual like duties were kind of the same, but I, I don't, I don't know if it makes sense what I'm asking. But like, what was the, what was an internship like in the '80s? Um, or I guess it like yeah. is it is it like right now it's part of people's path, right? Like, I went to Northeastern University. They've had what's called the co-op program, cooperative education, since before I went there, 15 years ago or whatever. And now schools are pushing that because parents expect some real world experience. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was like that in the 80s. It wasn't remotely like that. And as I had said, I'd studied visual art. I mean, if I'd been an intern for a painter, right. it might have fit into my curriculum. But I wasn't even thinking that way. Yeah. The way I was thinking was, and I've always thought this way, actually, curiosity is my primary motivator. Mm. Am I interested? Am I engaged? Am I learning? Yeah. And wherever that takes me is where I go. Right. Um, that's absolutely a steady thread from me as a tyke through college, through addiction, through the music business, you mm -hmm. know. And that doesn't have a lot to do with uh, extra credit or aligning with any of those kind of curriculums. So the internships in the 80s um, hover outside the door. Yeah. You know. 
tell everyone you know what you want to do. And someone will know someone who knows someone mm -hmm. who will say, oh, let me make a call. As I said before we started the interview, I don't know how or who I knew that got me into Platinum Island Studios. Right. I just knew I'd probably been blowing it up a storm. That I want to be in the I'm going to be in the music business, and someone said, "Oh, I can get you an internship. Mm -hmm. Ten bucks a shift." Seemed. I mean, to me, I was like, I get paid. Sure. To do this. Yeah. Um, but mostly, you weren't. Like there was no regulation of these things. Now it's much right. more regulated. Everyone's kind of on board. Ooh, free labor, mm -hmm. or you got to pay. It was a free for all. Yeah. In those years, and I just wanted experience. Exactly. I just wanted to be near the business, any aspect of it, and I wanted experience. And I was just super curious and I looked for ways to be useful. I looked for, you know, I could I was I always gravitated towards the things that I had a little bit more of a knack for. So hovering during a recording session, it was pretty clear to me that, that was not a direction I was gonna go. I wasn't mm -hmm. gonna be an engineer. Right. It was nothing about that process that said, ooh, I could totally get with that. Yeah. I had also interned at a radio station and they put me in front of a soundboard and had me do, you know, mock radio uh, programs. I was a disaster at it. Um, you know, left the mic on when I was laughing, talked over songs, uh, said the wrong call letters of the radio station. So it was like not a natural fit. <laughs> Anything having to do with people, communications, relationships, I excelled at. So in those environments, I could tell, ooh, okay, there's something for me to latch on to. I remember when I first decided to go into public relations and out of AR, a woman I'd known at Geffen who was just a gem, she said to me, kind of, she, she queried me and said, why do you want to go into public relations? Because to her, it didn't seem like a natural fit. It seemed like stepping away from the art. Mm. And I knew what she meant. Right. I understood it. But I also had this driving sense that, that it would be something I would be good at. Yeah. And I'm glad that I did pursue it, but I understood her question. And I've had a couple of those questions along the way, which is an interesting thing. Like there's a, almost a stigma on public relations. You know, that there's, because it's like in sales. So it's like one step away from a car salesman kind of attitude sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I remember... Uh, the daughter of one of my artists saying to me, you know, we talked about art school, we talked about photography and visual art. And then she said kind of abruptly, why on earth are you a publicist? And I, I felt my own sense of shame. Like I wanted to defend it. Like, well, I don't know. It's just kind of like a temporary thing or, you know, I, I didn't know kind of, I was young at the time. I was only probably a couple of years into it. And I, I had to question it myself because I thought, wasn't I meant to be an artist? But I have to say, and I've stuck with it now, what, 30 years? I'm 30 years into this. Um, I feel creatively engaged, uh, spiritually engaged, and useful. Mm -hmm. I feel useful, and I love that feeling. Exactly. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess I understand that comment, but especially in the pre-digital era, I mean... That's how teenage me found out about artists, you know, in a magazine. So it, I, I'm, I'm surprised to hear that because I guess we all have our biases or our perspectives. So it's like, I'm used to that as a manager, right? It's like, oh, well, you're making a commission or it's all about business or whatever. But, you know, when I explain the pre-digital music industry 
and how it evolved. And I'm explaining it to people younger than me at, at conferences or whatever. I'm like, look, like I used to have to read spin magazine and be like, that looks interesting. And then drive my car to the record store. And that, you know, there were so many steps involved, but my point is it started with that first step. You know, the magazines were how I found out about things. So to me, that's, that's incredibly connected to the art, right? Like you're conveying their story and what they want to get across. I agree completely. And I think what it also opens up, which is maybe not the right forum here, but that there are, when we say public relations, there really should be now so many different genres or or, or aspects of what that job is. Right. Because in early days, for example, one of the ways, uh, one of the most expedient ways to get a name out there was through the columns. So as part of training, one was encouraged to write fake items. So you get used to writing an item, an item, an item, so you can get and that was something I always was very bad at because that's not the kind of public relations I actually want to do. And I think that's the star maker machinery that public relations plays a part in, mm -hmm. as does marketing, as does, you know, the, the image making part of it is a whole different part of it. And there's certainly every article about an artist contributes to how the public perceives them. So that's built into it. But when you're dealing with authentic artists, you just put out what they're doing in the most honest, of course, positive way, contextualizing it perhaps as you might see it as historically relevant. And then you let the writer or the editor or the producer choose, is this a story that I'm turned on to? Is this music I'm turned on to? Is this important because of who the artist is? And then they tell that story. And maybe you cast it um, by picking the right writer or the right producer or which show it should go on. But to me, the, the public relations that I was interested in was moving, as you would say, like from the project this beautiful piece of art that somebody's made, this beautiful piece of music um, and conveying it and kind of lo lovingly putting it into the public domain. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting. Uh, the star maker stuff, I've never been drawn to at all. Right. I'm turned off. You know, there's, that, there's magazines and, and outlets out there that I loathe for those reasons. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky because uh, those the kind of artists who cultivate that, the cult of celebrity. Right. I don't work with them. When people would come to me and say, okay, I want to do, I want to know where all the right parties are and I want to know what the right columns are, I, then you should probably go somewhere else. Yeah. Because I don't want to go to those parties. And right. A lot of my artists want to stay out of the columns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't want to go to the parties. Um, and that was, it's a better fit for me. So I think, well, I mean, let's talk about, like I said before this interview, it feels cliche to ask, like, how has the industry changed? But PR has really changed um, to the extent that, because I have to explain this to artists all the time, you know, it, there used to be a very clear ROI, return on investment, um, when money was spent on PR. Because if you're in Rolling Stone magazine, if you're in print, you're going to sell records. We're gonna sell tickets. And now, you know, when we're working with publicists, I have to explain to artists like you might not see that financial uptick, but I need 
that stereo gum length, that Brooklyn vegan length, that Rolling Stone spin, whatever. So I can take it to music supervisors, to booking agents. So it's like we we need those tools. So how has how has PR changed for you? You've been doing this thirty years. That's amazing. Well, I think you just nailed it, which is it's it's transmuted from being a way to uh, get to sales and earn money and move product to validation. Right. That's its real value now mm-hmm. is uh, it's an external validating machinery that perpetuates awareness, which hopefully eventually results in people wanting to hear the music. But also not only has public relations changed, uh, the whole mechanics of our industry and its financial uh, skeleton has changed. Yeah. So it's not anymore like how many CDs are we selling? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how much product are we moving? It's how many people have listened and does that eventually result in some kind of monetization that helps fuel the artist's career? Um, so in terms of public relations, yes, it has changed so much. When you wanted people to know about something you were doing, you needed the media to tell them. Right. So if an artist wanted to reach 2 million, 3 million, 70 million people, they had to go on the TV. They mm-hmm. had to go through certain newspapers. Um, they had the audience. The artist didn't. Well, now on social media, the artist does. Right. And just by a small link, they can access so-and-so's, you know, they can, they can, God, they can grow that audience so easily through social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it isn't so much about how to reach them anymore. It's about how the story is perceived. So the media are useful in terms of um, telling that story and um, also validating that story. Right. This, this is worth it. This is important. Um, when you get something in the New York Times, when you get something on NPR, it's, there's a validation Huge. to it. Yeah. yeah. And especially when they come out in support of it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been a tremendous change. And the other thing is, uh, it's equal the playing field just a tad. Because we used to need the media so much more than we do now. Mm-hmm. There's an equal exchange. They need us too. Yep. They need content. They need the validation of our artists on their show to say the show is still important. The show can still book those A-list artists. So there's an interesting, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very different playing field. And so much of it falls back into social media mm-hmm. on both sides of it. Someone, you know, we get the story in the magazine we want. The magazine comes back to us, says, will you, you know, tweet this out on your, so it's the, the, the cross validation from artist to outlet. And anyway, yeah, it's very interesting. And you're so good at it because so many people that were in that pre-digital world don't, they're like, they need to read Ariel Hyatt's books on social media that I was telling you. And I get it. You know, it's like you're trained one way and it's this unique world. And um, yeah, I just, you do it. You do it so well. Thank you very much. I think we were talking earlier about Amanda Palmer, who you Mm -hmm. represented. Um, Her, when she came out with that Kickstarter campaign and said, we are the media. Yeah. Anybody who didn't understand how things had changed, I'd point them in that direction. I'd say, just go watch that. You'll get it. Absolutely. And if you don't get it, eventually, hopefully you will. But I feel like Amanda really articulated that moment in time mm-hmm. and the huge shift. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't need the middleman anymore. 
So it's a new dance. Right. So let's go back. Um, you left Geffen mm-hmm. and you're, you're getting into PR and you're on the road with Ringo, right? Yep. Yep. Tell me a little bit about that and, and growing together. That was amazing. Um, I was um, seven months sober. He was just about eight months sober. He and Barbara had just just gotten sober. So we had that in common, which was great. And I certainly was not helming that campaign. My boss, Joe Dare, was helming that campaign along with Mika Elbaz. I was a junior and needed to be, and I was learning. But I was prioritizing my sobriety at the time. And so that kind of put Ringo and, and Barbara and I on that same path together. Um, so by the time he toured again, I, my boss then would call it good casting. Our priorities are completely aligned. Mm-hmm. Sobriety first, music second. Um, and we formed a, a friendship and a, and a relationship. And uh, 30 years later, we're still rocking and rolling. Next year will be 30 years for Rinko and his all-star band. That's amazing. It is amazing. 1989 was the first tour. And what a amazing. Oh I might have been there. <laughs> like, my parents took me to a lot of shows. Well, that show was remarkable. On that stage was Ringo. He had Levon Helm on one side and Jim Keltner on the other. We had uh, Dr. John, Clarence Clemens, Nils Lofgren, Joe Walsh, um, Billy Preston. It was, it was an amazing, amazing. And Rick Danko. Oh, Rick Danko. So I just wow! What a set list. We I think I'll have to check. We probably have that ticket sub somewhere. I'm sure, and there's plenty of video on it too. But 30 years of great bands. It's just wow. And then, how did you start your first company? I after about five years at the firm I was at, I had decided that I was ready for a change. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I wasn't really sure what that change was going to look like. I just knew I needed to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I took a leap. And then Linda reached out and said, do you want to still do PR? And I said, yeah, I do. I think I do. So I very humble beginnings. I uh, started right in my living room with nothing set up. You know, no business plan, no business name, mm-hmm. nothing. Uh, and I started with Linda. Ringo was, it was almost simultaneous. Um, and then, as I said, Robert Palmer had already left the firm that I had been at. Mm-hmm. And then when I went on my own, I got a call from his manager. Um, and then you'd be 40. Amazing. It was. It was absolutely amazing. And Robert, oh, my God, what a, what a phenomenal voice, what a phenomenal musician, and what a gentleman. Elizabeth is in the book. She's in, I believe, uh, Chapter 10 uh, or Chapter 9, where we talk about uh, balance. And so tell me what that word means to you especially in such I, everyone's industry is non-stop like non-stop industry non-stop we live in new york city social media you know what what does balance mean to you boy that word has grown for me it's evolved um when i first got sober i just wanted to work and be sober and so i was probably not very balanced because work there was so much invested in work for me. I was, I had a lot to prove, not only to myself, but to my industry, to my clients. I had a lot to learn. So I was borderline workaholic. 
mm. in those early years. And I loved it. It thrilled me. Sure. Um, and just to have access to my sober brain, that was thrilling, you know? Mm. Um, and so I was very jazzed to pour myself into work. About five or six years in, I got into a relationship. So balance started to creep into my life just by wanting to have more time to be in a marriage. Um, and so that kind of enforced some sense of balance. But as we were talking earlier, um, I feel like sobriety was like turning on a light bulb in my, in my life, in my mind, in my spirit. And that light seeks more light. And so if you stay on that path, you kind of are naturally drawn towards improving things across the board. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that changed for me about four years sober was going veggie. Mm. And that was a lot of Linda McCartney. Nice. Yeah. And um, so I went veggie and that increased the light. And then as I was veggie, I was veggie, but not healthy. So my morning routine, and actually it was the Spice Girls who were Melanie C, who I'm dear friends with after our tour. Um, Melanie reminded me, because I've forgotten what my breakfast used to be, cappuccino and Coca-Cola. Diet Coke. Diet Coke. So I I would start my every day, and I'd say breakfast to champions, and I'd have my cappuccino, with chase it with a Diet Coke, and I love the flavor. Sure. Um, And I was very uh, defensive about any more changes. My feeling was I gave up booze and drugs i gave up meat back off yeah <laughs> I've got leave this. me sugar caffeine yep. i mean my goodness um so slowly but surely i was willing to kind of get turned on to healthier foods i like the way it made my body feel mm-hmm. because you know the sure and steady route has has been the one that's proven the best for me some people make a change on a dime and bless them for it but i've been slow about each change but each change i've made slowly has lasted it's stuck with me so what is it you know 25 years later 26 years later i'm still vegetarian 30 years later i'm still sober um so along the way uh those changes included a health regimen a meditation regimen i learned about tm maybe 10 12 years ago transcendental yeah transcendental meditation um i for me, myself, I attend 12-step uh, meetings. Um, and, and just a reminder on that, those meetings I, are everywhere? Everywhere around the world. So when I travel, I have that infrastructure there. And it isn't just so that I don't drink. That is its primary purpose. The other primary purpose is that not only do I not drink, but I make the most of my day, the most I can, I'm able to be of service everywhere I go. Yep. Because just by showing up as somebody who stayed sober, you're carrying a message, mm-hmm. and you get to plug into something that's bigger than you. And in our industry, in rock and roll, rock and roll can take itself incredibly serious. And when you're good at your job or you care about it, you you do take it seriously. Yeah. I take my stuff very seriously. Your artist changed the world. Yeah. Um, but I think it's so important to remember to contextualize it in, in a bigger picture. And when I put sobriety first, and it's almost a decision I have to make, as I did when I started down this road, I have to make that decision every set of 24 hours. When I do that, everything falls in line in the right way. And when I don't, I see the results of that too. There's more chaos and havoc, and I'm not, 
I'm not as useful, neither to my clients or myself or my daughter. Um, so over the years, my regimen has really expanded. So it's meditation, it's prayer, it's meetings, it's a physical regimen, includes Pilates. Um, the outdoors is where I feel closest to um, my higher power. So I get out there a lot. Um, I paddle in the New York Harbor. I've got kayaks in my backyard. If I have 40 minutes in the middle of a day, I take them and I hit the water and I do it with my phone on. So if somebody needs to reach me, they can reach me. Um, same thing if I have, if I'm not working in a night and uh, I take my tent and my dog and sometimes my daughter and we go 26 miles north and we sleep out under the stars on West Mountain and Bear Mountain Park. And I'm back behind my desk by 9, 9.30. Amazing. It is. So to me, it's not about, you know, it is so much 24 hours at a time. And it isn't holding my breath for those two weeks in February where I'm going to go have the life I want. Mm -hmm. I've decided I want it all every set of 24. Right. So I don't want to wait and carve out six months and walk the Appalachian Trail. Maybe someday later in my life I will. But right now, I want to know I get onto the Appalachian Trail four, five, six times a month. It's exactly. become part of my life. Yeah. Um, trees, nature, you know, uh, I feed my spirit. I feed my soul. I feed my body. I eat organic. I'm very careful about that. I'm mindful about what I buy, where I buy it from, what's in it, um, all those things. But again, this is a result of 30 years on a path. Yes. So, you know. At the beginning of that path, you want to do it all at once because mm -hmm. you want the result immediately. I want to have that serene, healthy body and mind. It's taken me a long time. For anybody who can just jump into it, great, good on you. I can't even imagine. I that. couldn't. Yeah. You know, even even my willingness to let go of sugars. Mm -hmm. First, it was like, okay, I'm veggie. Six months, eight months, a year later, oh damn, that has gelatin in it, and that's not veggie. Right. Oh man gotta give up marshmallows well thankfully they make vegan ones now but mm -hmm. they didn't then it was yeah. real i mean to me it was like oh totally but the commitment the ability to the willingness yeah grows right and um yeah so my days are, are filled with a bit of everything and i'm so glad that you talked about that gradual process because for people that are interested in balance and wellness like we want them to achieve that but this is why so many New Year's resolutions fail, right? Because it's like, I'm going to run five miles a day. I'm going to go to yoga every day. And then we know two weeks into January, the yoga classes clear out. And um, so, yeah, just one step at a time, what you're drawn to, experiment with how you feel and go from there. Exactly. There's a saying I love called easy does it, but do it. I love it. Yeah. Sure and steady. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes it... It can get scary because people that dedicate in one particular path, there's a, it looks like it's working. Mm -hmm. Someone works 24 hours at a time. They get all the accolades. They're getting this, that, the other. They're, they're getting so rich. And you're thinking, maybe I'm doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're on a diet and they've lost 50 pounds in four months and they're running every day. And you think, wow, maybe they're really, maybe they have something I don't have. And then a year later, the diet's gone, mm -hmm. the weight's back. Right. Or uh, two years, 10 years down the road, that person has been working their bones, mm -hmm. have a heart attack. Yeah. And 
they regret that they didn't have more time for family or their friends or any of those things. And, and I think there is a way to go that middle road where you can have a bit of it all. Yeah. You know, um, I don't want to be a workaholic. Right. I want to take my job seriously. I'm so grateful for the opportunities I have, mm -hmm. for the people I get to represent, for all of it. And I'm so grateful that because of choosing a sober, healthy life, I get to paddle on the water. Oh, my God. I get to hang out with my dog and my daughter. I get to hike mountains. And I find that rather than being admonished by the people I work with, whether it's my clients or the press or, or peers, I've only had positivity come my way. Yeah. Where they say, wow, Elizabeth, that's awesome. Can you tell me more about it? So it hasn't been, I think, and we talked about this, the workaholic uh, image mm -hmm. is starting to lose its grip. Yeah. If I had been this way 10 years ago, I would have been admonished. Right. Nice work if you can get it. Uh, like, well, I've been working all day. What have you done? Yeah. You know, that kind of attitude. Because right. I remember that attitude and I was intimidated by it. And I'm not anymore. Good. I'm very bold. Yeah. You know, I post about where I am. If I'm on a mountain, I post these beautiful photos from a mountain. I don't pretend I'm behind my desk. Exactly. And the other thing is, because, as you said, it's a public relations is similar to news because it's on a 24-hour cycle. So there's times that I have to work at two in the morning. There's times I have to work at six in the morning. I'm dealing with time zones in London and LA. So my schedule is a little bit crazy. Mm -hmm. So I can take an hour at noon because I might be working at 11. Exactly. And I have also been sometimes admonished about not having call stronger boundaries between mm -hmm. either my work life, my client life, uh, my home life. It hasn't worked for me. Boundaries don't work for me in those traditional ways. I don't have an office hour. Right. That bears no relevance to my life. Yeah. And because I've let go of that, I have utter freedom. And I'm really happy with how it works. So I can't say how this would work for anybody else. I just know that by moving with the flow of it and taking time when I get it really works for me as a single mom. Yeah. So I do have the regimen of school days, mm -hmm. but the balance has been organic and, and uh, yeah, works for me. I love it. Um, just to wrap up, I should have mentioned at the beginning, but we'll talk about it now. I actually met Elizabeth when I was an intern. And that's just a good example. I mean, Elizabeth and I have this relationship now, but just as far as building professional relationships, I met you at an internship when I was 20 at Beach One Classic. My boss very kindly like basically made it clear, like Elizabeth is a big deal and I'm going to introduce you. And I remember your beautiful long hair and, and fast forward six months later, um, I was working with the Dresden dolls and Amanda Palmer's like, and this was, you know, the early days in the band, uh, they didn't really have a team yet. And she was like, Oh my gosh, Elizabeth Freund might be interested in working with us. And I was like, I've met her. And I, I don't, I don't think I said it like that. I was like, Oh yeah, I met her. And, and then when I met you again, I was able to say that, you know, like, oh, we met at um, the rock and roll fantasy camp at, uh, at when I was interning at Beach One Classic. So that's just that's just a reminder of like, even if you didn't remember me, I could say that was a legitimate thing to say, you know, Which I did. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, so you work with interns. Yes. Tell me about that experience. Like what? 
what's a good intern? What can be frustrating? Anything you want to share about your experience working with interns? With interns, I, I, first I want to take total culpability for the fact that I suck at delegating. Mm. Utterly and totally suck at delegating. Anyone who's worked with me will tell you that. Um, I'm moving pretty fast, as I've already said, at my own pace. And when I'm busy, it's easier for me to do it myself than explain how you can help me. So the best interns I've ever had, I describe it as if I'm kind of running on a track and they run next to me. Nice. And they kind of start keeping pace with me and then you'll figure out how to help me. Genius. Um, so it is, it's about jumping in full, yes. full on. Um, some in my particular industry, it is always stunning to me when I'm talking to someone who's working at my company who didn't check Facebook and Twitter and our website that day. Yeah. It, it blows my mind. Mm -hmm. So you want to know what we're doing? Yeah. Watch the feed. Exactly. Because I'm constantly posting. Yep. And make sure you've actually uh, following my clients. Yes. And start getting to know not only um, what they're up to, but, but what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. Because that shows. And then you're going to be very useful. Exactly. And then you might be able to make a suggestion because you've started to immerse yourself in it. That's what I am. I'm immersed in this stuff. I I live and breathe it in a way, as I said, that there's not a lot of boundaries in my life. So um, my clients are largely my friends. Some of them become like a second family. Mm -hmm. They know my daughter. They've watched her grow up. So they're, we're all very close. And, um, and what that means is if you, if you want to be kind of helpful and part of the team, you're going to get interested in them too. Yeah. And what they're doing. That's kind of it. Uh, I've tried. I love that you wrote this manual. I'm going to buy this for everyone who's going to work for me, everyone who already has worked for me. Um, my approach to teaching interns for the part that I have is personal, you know, yeah. kind of um, there's no hierarchy. There's no, uh, well, you just get the coffee for now, my right. dear. Uh, you jump in feet first. Mm -hmm. And the truth is I still get coffee. Yeah. I still run uh my client is into health. Okay, uh, what health bar do you want? I'll go to five places and find the exact health bar you want. It isn't just about calling Rolling Stone magazine or, you know, no, I only book depressed. You do all the other little stuff. The little stuff, first of all, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the whole picture. It's understanding the people that you're working for and what is important to them. And exactly. I know for me, for you too, I'm sure, uh, if you want to have your best day and you really need blueberries, you want those blueberries to be the best blueberries you've ever had. <laughs> so, you know, it isn't obvious, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not just knowing your the top magazines and, and doing lists and figuring out. And that's important. The infrastructure is mm -hmm. important. So what would an intern do? He would get on some of our uh, subscri subscribed uh, database, research databases, and create up-to-date lists on each city and call every outlet. I love that you said you have something. Don't be afraid of the phone, because I find that more and more and more as we're so reliant on emailing, exactly. uh, so many people are afraid of the phone. Yep. Um, and that's that's important to get over because sometimes you can send twenty emails and these people have three thousand coming in at them. Exactly. You pick up the phone, they answer it. Yep. Especially at news desks. Mm -hmm. So, um, so those are it's a, it's a little bit all over the place, but uh, for interns. Yeah, there's, there's the mechanics of public relations, which I certainly can teach, and I have a little bit of an infrastructure for them to kind of plug into. Mm -hmm. um, we used to have a little, very short little manual about, okay, these are the do's and don'ts. 
for your basic PR thing. Yeah. Here's, you know, here's our website for our listserv so you can get the, we send a blast out, use list A, not B, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, be curious. Curiosity is going to carry you the distance. Make yourself indispensable. Mm-hmm. Ask, you know, it's not just about asking questions because that can be very time consumptive. Yes. I'm not suggesting not, but just you can find so much on Google. Yep. You can find so much on, you know, the websites of the clients. Um, stay curious. I love it. And, you know, you talked about, you know, I, I love that running alongside you. Like, to me, that's like observe like crazy and then you use the word immerse and that's so crucial too and I've done that so many times in my career whether it was in college I immersed myself in the Boston music scene you know and that's what I tell people though they're like how do I do this I'm like just start doing it exactly exactly you just start doing it that's what I did that's what I did in PR um that's what I've done at every step along the way I just dove in and it's so much more interesting yep you figure it out and the people that you think know what they're doing most of the time they're just really good at putting that forward they don't know what they're doing either exactly joe walsh has a great song about that too lucky that way he said you know just just pretend you know what you're doing everyone believes you i love it yeah amazing well thank you so much for your time elizabeth and your creativity and and your inspiration it it means the world to me you do you mean the world to me Thanks everyone for listening and we will catch you next time on the interning one-on-one podcast. Oh, and Elizabeth, where can people find you on social media and beautiful day media PR. Perfect. Yep. Uh, it's on in- Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Love it. Awesome. Well, catch you next time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the interning one-on-one podcast. I'm your host, Emily White. You can follow us anytime over on Twitter at Interning101, as well as on our website, interning101.com. I'm on Twitter at, at EMWizzle. Hit us up anytime if you have questions, comments, guest suggestions, or just want to get something off your mind. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.